Um, a few years ago, when I was living in Peru, and I had to make a decision between moving back to the US or staying in Peru, there was a pretty significant prayer process that was involved in my life. Um, some pretty significant heart-to-hearts with God where I was just asking him what his will was, what his desire was. And um, one of the things that ultimately gave me a lot of peace about moving back to the US was the idea that I would be a missionary in my own country, which was just a weird sort of thought, because I was like, how can you be a missionary in your own, in your own country, right? But it very much felt like that. Um, and I, I mentioned in the past before that when I moved from the US to Peru, we didn't really have a sending church. We had a sending organization. But oddly enough, when we moved from Peru to the US, we had a sending church. And it was a church that we helped plant. So it was just this whole sort of paradigm shift um, where out of the ordinary, ordinary days of my life, God did some extraordinary things. And um, if I'm really, really transparent with you, I'm having a hard time with the point of this sermon today. And the reason why is because it's all about the valuation of life. It's all about our worth and our value. And um, in a span of like less than 24 hours, there's been two tragic shootings yet again. And I don't feel like I can just skirt over that and talk about the valuation of life. And also, uh, the reason why I bring up the idea of being a missionary in my own country is because we are all missionaries in our own country. Um, but I feel even more of a burden in that regard. And so when I talk about the valuation of life this morning, um, it's because I, I think of all those moments that I was in Peru, and I would hear about all the devastating things that was happening in my country that I couldn't do anything about. Have you ever had that helpless feeling? I remember um, working at Home Depot when the San Bernardino shooting took place and how helpless I felt. I can't imagine the people in El Paso or the people in Dayton right now and how helpless they feel. So it is. There's this inner tension that I'm experiencing right now because it's like, on the one hand, there's so much life that's meant to be spoken based off of Scripture, just even the verses that we read this morning. But the paradox or the tension is, is that there's people that today are not experiencing that same sort of life. Um, and so uh, I wanted to pray before I continued, um, just for us, but then also for those that are, are hurting and mourning. Would you join me in praying this morning? Uh, God, I thank you that you are the giver of life. Um, and it's moments like these where I feel that tension of, of being a pastor, of being a missionary, um, where I, I, on the one, one hand, I can preach words of life, but on the other hand, uh, be so aware of the death in our midst, so aware of, of the hate, so aware of uh, the xenophobia and the racism. I'm so aware of these things that, that are tearing us apart as people, not just in this nation, but all across the world. This isn't a phenomenon that's unique to the US. So God, I pray for us this morning. Um, 
First, that we might hear your word and be compelled to be givers of life, to speak life, to act in ways that reflect our value and worth in you, Christ. But I also pray for those that are hurting and mourning, not just in this space, but all across our nation and all across this world that are coming face to face with tragedy they can't ignore, they can't escape. Um, for those that are worried about their loved ones because they haven't heard yet, we pray for unimaginable peace. And we pray for communities that will come around and support those in El Paso and those in Dayton and all over um, that are hurting and in sorrow. Um, God, I, I pray even um, for my heart in this tension that I can, um, through your power, um, speak your word and proclaim your word and that we might be used um, mightily this morning in worship of you. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for praying with me. And, um, so this week, um, I had this question of, who am I? And um, that was a result of a question that I asked last week, which I'll remind you, I'll read. I meant to put it up there, and I forgot this morning. But it was, last week was, what does it mean to have an ongoing, life-giving, life-altering relational journey with God? And I said, uh, after we kind of processed through that together and try to figure that out, um, I, I said that maybe we need to consider more of what was done for us and what we were invited into. And then you all got really vulnerable. Um, and one of the things that really struck me was uh, Mel's vulnerability. I'm going to call you out. Um, because I, I came to I, just something that I've been processing this whole week. So I came to the realization, and it's not a new realization, but something that was just kind of festering in a holy way is this idea of I can know all the right answers and I can do all the right things, but still feel shackled and changed, chained to a reality that's not mine. Like I can know all the spiritual truth. I can know all about life-giving, life-altering relational journeys with God and still feel stuck, feel chained. And I wondered uh, how many people could relate to that. How many of us could say, yes, I know these things to be true, but at the same time feel so stuck with the way that we're living, stuck with our thinking, stuck with the lies that we may believe, these, these things that we can't avoid that are staring at us in, the, in our faces. Um, I, I wrote down here one of my reflections is that we're so aware of our aren'ts, our nots, our can'ts, and our shouldn'ts. I'll say that again. We are so aware of our aren'ts, I'm not, the things that I can't, the things that I shouldn't, the things that I wouldn't. I mean, we just have a list. And sometimes we forget who we are because of that. I was reading for one of my classes, this is this book called The Power of Mentoring. It's a class on mentoring. And I read something really interesting, and I'm going to read it for you today. Um, this is the author, by the way, is Martin Sanders, in case you are ever interested in mentoring people. It's a good book. He says, this is in regards to the quest for character. So this is ultimately, this who am I question is an identity and character question. So he's talking about the quest for character, and he says, traditionally, people have defined themselves by what they are not or what they do not do. 
In his book, The Canadians, Andrew Malcolm says that when the average Canadian is asked, what is a Canadian? Again and again, the most common response is, we are not Americans. <laughs> In general, Canadians have tended to identify themselves by what they are not, rather than articulate a statement of their own national identity. Christians have also given a similar response when they describe themselves. When asked, what is a Christian, or who am I? The response is a list of nots, rather than a proactive compilation of what a Christian is. Some churches have even made a practice of defining a Christian by what a Christian does not do more than by what a Christian is. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I can relate to this because much of my life is defined by what I am not or what I don't do rather than who I am or what I'm invited into. Can you relate to that? I mean, look at your decision-making for a moment. How many of your decisions are based on what other people might think? I mean, a lot of them. The irony for me this morning was I was really nervous about talking about something that can be deemed as political. I was worried about what you might think. And then I have this choice. Do I say it or not? Will they judge me or not? How many of my decisions are based off of what people might think? Or how many of my decisions are based off of what people have said? So I thought an exercise that would be beneficial for us is to ask a question and to answer it. Here we, yeah, here we go. It's not too bad, I don't think. I want you to consider for a moment, who are you? Not who you're not, but who are you? Think about it. Eh? I don't either. I don't either. But I think, and I, uh, thank you for, uh, for saying that. The reason why I say a couple of words is because you'll remember a couple of words. If you need to remember a paragraph, you're not going to remember that. And I think in many ways, uh, Scripture gives us some key words about who we are that help us combat the things that people say that we are, or the fears that we have, or the lies that we believe in the middle of the night when we can't sleep. So in a couple of words, who are you? This is a safe place. And I mean, looking around, you're all sitting next to people that you really know well and hopefully are vulnerable with. So you can share that. Uh, in a couple of words, who are you? So take some time, talk about it, think about it, talk about it. Who are you?
okay. So I would love to hear from those of you that are willing to be vulnerable and honest. Who are you? Child of God. Okay, okay. That's a good start. Child of God. Who else? What else? Who else? Grandfather. Grandfather, dad. Okay. Husband, husband, mother, wife, sister, friend, uniquely made. Okay. Spiritual mentor. Try to be. Okay. Thanks for the honesty. I'm in that boat too. My favorite one is beloved, and a close second is saint. I know, you know, we think, oh, saint. Um, If you read through the epistles, you'll be shocked to see how many times you're referred to as saint, not sinner. Forgiven. Forgiven. Here we go. See, the interesting thing is, is that um, when I kind of did this exercise myself, I was kind of astonished with two things. First is that it was far easier for me to say out loud or in my head the things that people said about me. And they generally weren't very good. (laughs) Shocking, I know I'm perfect, but... But you know, those are the things, those deep wounds that we carry, that even if we know they're not true, we can still, they're still in our head and they still kind of eat away at us. So there's, there are those things, you know, those immediate sort of uh, things. But then the other thing was tied to so much of who I am is tied to what I do. So much of that. What I do right or what I do wrong. And I was thinking, man, But is that the core of who I am, is what I do? I hope not. Because um, I feel like I'm constantly going to be in this endless cycle of failure. So I I thought um, I was reading through different scriptures, and that's why I had Mark read Psalm 100. And I'm just going to kind of jump back and forth, because um, really, when I heard Mel last week, and, I, and she was so vulnerable with us. What I heard is, am I valuable? I'm not putting words in your mouth, of course, but that's what I was hearing. Am I valuable? Do I have worth? And so I thought I would start with Psalm 100. Uh, I've been trying to journey through the Psalms a lot more recently. And one of the things that really uh, stuck out to me in this psalm, which is, and I'm grateful that Mark read the kind of the title, is it says, a psalm of thanksgiving. And why is it a psalm of thanksgiving? I think it's sandwiched right in the middle, in verse 3. This is on page 481, if you wanted to follow along. It says, know that the Lord is God. So it defines who God is, his identity. He, he is Lord, he is God. But then the follow-up is, it is he that made us. And then it says a really, really profound statement. 
and we are his. Child of God. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I could probably do a sermon series just on this verse. He is God. He's made us. We are his possession. And I know that's a tricky word because when we hear the word possession, it's like, uh, usually a negative connotation. But we're his. Like, we are meant to be held in his hand. We are his in every sense of the word, comprehensively his. We are his people. Um, Have you ever heard that uh, expression or said it? Maybe it's a southern thing. Uh, You're my people. What does that mean? You're my people. I relate to you. I know you and you know me. Because in order for me to say you're my people, I need to know that you're my people. And he says, you are my people and the sheep of his pasture. So even in that, it's this, not just possession in a negative way, but you're my sheep. And what is a pasture made for? Grazing, nourishment. So it's not just possession for the sake of possession. It's for provision. It's for love. It's for care. It's for all of these beautiful things. My first sort of challenge or question is, um, do you feel this about you? Um, I always find it uh, interesting. Um, If you look in Exodus, Exodus 3, which is really kind of early on, in the Bible, that's Exodus 3, verse 14. Maybe you've heard this. How, when, when Moses is like, how am I going to tell people about who you are? God says you can tell them this way. He, he says a specific thing. He says, I am. I'll read it to you. This is Exodus 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the, the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. See, in Psalm 100, know that the Lord is God is a declaration of God saying, I am. And I, I wonder if maybe, uh, if we wanted to know who we are, maybe we should be looking more to, to the one that says, I am. Like if you want to know, if I want to know who I am, maybe I need to look to the one who's completely secure in his identity. There's no question in God's mind about who he is. There's no question in God's mind about what he does. There's no question in God's mind about what people may say about him or not say about him. He simply exists in the perfect knowledge and existence of I am. I mean, that's a really bold statement, isn't it? To just say I am. He doesn't have to say father. He doesn't have to say child. He doesn't have to say any of those things. He simply says I am. And then he adds to that by saying Father, Son, Spirit, right? But that's so that we can understand, not so that way he can understand. Like sometimes when I lift, list out titles, it's so that way I can remind myself, okay, yeah, I am a father. I'm a good person. <laughs> I'm loving. And usually I say those things when I feel like I'm not. 
You notice that? Like to combat those sort of lies. Um, if you go to John 8, Jesus says something really interesting too. I'll give you the page if you wanted to follow along, which is on page 870. This is John 8. No, I'm sorry, uh, 871, uh, verse 58. So remember, I read to you Exodus 14. I'll read 13 again. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now I'll read you John. This is on page 871, chapter 8, verse um, 58. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, what does it say? I am. And then what's, what happens after that? <laughs> so they picked up stones to throw at him, <laughs> but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Do you know why they stoned him or tried to stone him? Because he said, I am. Just as God said so many years before, I am that I am, Jesus is saying, I am, and that is the worst form of blasphemy. But Jesus is perfect in his identity and his security. Notice, he's like, can you, can you imagine if I said that statement? Please get some stones, <laughs> right? He doesn't even think twice about making such a proclamation. I am. The reason why he says that, and I'm really indebted to, there's a Bible study that I read by a guy named Michael Cruder. He was trying to talk about like these I am statements and why they're so significant. Um, and he started pointing out that if you looked in Isaiah 40 uh, through 55, so if you were to write this down, and I would suggest that maybe you would, um, you could look through Isaiah 40 through, and so chapters 40 through chapters 55. Isaiah 40 through 55 are all statements of Jesus, or excuse me, God saying, I am. This is who I am. Um, I didn't mark a page, but I'll give you an example of it. One of them is Isaiah uh, 41, uh, verse 4. So Isaiah 41, verse 4 says, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am first and will be with the last. I am statement. When Jesus is saying in the midst of the people, I am, he's referring back to Isaiah. And so there's these constant statements. If you wanted to write down another one, that was Isaiah 41.4, but there's Isaiah 43.10. I'll read it for you. He says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Can you imagine people hearing Jesus saying that? I mean, they would have understood the allusions to Isaiah because this is completely contextual to that time. He's making statements that there's nobody else like me. So then we get to Colossians. 
because it stands within reason. And again, I, I say, who are you? Because if you want to know who you are, I think sometimes when I want to know who I am, I start inwardly. And that's where I hear all these different voices and different labels and different scenarios and situations. But the place that I'm going to find who I am is in Christ. And this is the Christ that says, I know exactly who I am. And then there's these passages from Paul to the Colossians. Um, I'm going to read, this is, you have this version here. I'm going to read just a slight variation. It's from a New Testament theologian that I really appreciate. He's one of the premier experts on the epistles. And he oftentimes will kind of take the Greek words and tweak them a little bit. Oh, and if you were questioning how I know that Jesus was using the Isaiah reference, uh, scripture was written in Hebrew. It was also written in parts in Aramaic. But there's also Hebrew Bibles that were actually written in Greek. The same Greek words in Isaiah that say I am are the same Greek words that Jesus used in John. So it's, he, it's a direct correlation. The same Greek that he says I am in in John is the same Greek that he's saying in Isaiah. Um, and so N.T. Wright is the theologian. And I'll read you his version. I'm going to actually bump up a few verses um, starting in chapter 20. His title for this is Dying and Rising with Christ. Um, it says, if you died with the king, coming out from the rule of the worldly elements, what's the point of laying down laws as though your life was merely worldly? Don't handle. Don't taste. Don't touch. Rules like that all have to do with things that disappear as you use them. They are the sort of regulations and teachings that mere humans invent. They may give an appearance of wisdom since they promote a do-it-yourself religion, a kind of humility, and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no use when it comes to dealing with physical self-indulgence. See, that's like Paul just gets right to it. Self-indulgence, right? Self-indulgence. So if you were raised to live with the king, search for the things that are above where the king is seated at God's right hand, Think about the things that are above, not the things that belong on the earth. Don't you see? You died, and your life has been hidden with the king in God. When the king is revealed, and he is your life, remember, then you too will be revealed with him in glory. Who's the king? See, the thing about self-indulgence is, is that we can be the king. Or the thing about the lies that we believe, somebody else can be our king. Like, uh, just do this for a moment. What is something that you still hold on to that somebody said about you that wasn't true? Is it there? Maybe didn't have to think too hard about it. When I believe that, lean into it, don't they have a sense of lordship over my life? Don't they have a sense of command and control of my life? Because undoubtedly, I know it's not true. But yet, the more that I allow it to consume me, it defines me in many different ways. 
And I start to question myself. Uh, you know, let's, let's be vulnerable for a second. Um, I remember that uh, when I was a little kid, I was called a liar a lot. Because I lied a lot. <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> but here's the difference. Um, rather than somebody saying, Sean, you're lying a lot, what did they say to me? You're a liar. It's different, isn't it? Sean, you're lying a lot. Sean, you're a liar. You're a swindler. You're a cheat. I'm not saying those things have been said about me. Uh, for me, it was drug addict. Addict. Yeah. But I'm not a drug addict, am I? I'm a beloved son of God. I did drugs in a very addictive way <laughs> that ended me up in drug treatment. Do you see the difference? One has complete command and control of my life. The other one is just saying some actual facts about me. I lied a lot. I certainly did. But I'm here to proclaim to you this morning that these things that we believe about ourselves or that people have said about us are not true. That's what Paul is reminding the Colossians of. And the context for them is that they're trying to understand what does it mean to be this, this person in this new way of living because before, to live in a holy way before God was to do all the right things. That's how they knew this is who I am is because I did all the right stuff. But now that's not even a paradigm they can operate from. Now the way that they're going to live is to look to Christ, the one who says, I am. The verse that he points out, or this verse that I'm pointing out, is he's, the right hand of God is a position of authority. It's not just security and knowing who he is. It's that it's perfect authority that he's declaring to us. You are. You are his beloved. You have value, not because of what you do, but because of who he is. And because of who he is, what did he do for us? He died on the cross for all the things that we do wrong. <laughs> He's the only one that can truly proclaim to us, beloved son and daughter, what you do or what people say to you about you doesn't define you. One of my favorite parts of this uh, particular says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That Greek word for hidden is like made safe. Like when I'm hiding, I think of my boys playing hide and seek last night. Like all the places they're not supposed to be, <laughs> they are, right? But this one is tucked away safely. It's that same thing in Psalm 100. We're his sheep, and he gives us this pasture to provide and care for us, tucked away safely. These are words of identity. Um, if you were to continue in verse 5, it says, as well, I'll ask you this question. Are we called and joined to the things people say about us? Like, are we called to those things? Are we called 
I know this is a weird way of saying it, but am I called to live into, Sean, you're a liar? Are you called to live into the things that people may say about you or the enemy may put into your mind about you? Is that your responsibility for life? Is that where you're going to find life? No, absolutely not. Um, it's easier to believe. Why is that? I won't make you answer. Uh, I'll just give an aside. Part of the reason why it's been easier for me to believe is because sometimes I don't know how to say to Jesus, you're my people. Like sometimes I read a scripture and I'm like, how could I ever do that? How could I ever be this holy man? How could I ever be like some of you when I said saint made this face? Say what? Paul says that. I'll give you an example in Colossians. To the saints and faithful brothers. How many of his letters are written to them telling them all the things that they're doing wrong? But he starts his letter with what? Saints. Faithful. For me, that tension is, how do I relate to God? How do I believe the things that God says about himself? And how do I believe the things that he says about me? Well, Paul kind of gives a little bit of a clue. In verse 5, he says, put to death. And then he gives a list. And it's a, well, let's just read it. <laughs> Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly. See, so there's these things that are heavenly, right? And there's these things that are earthly. Uh, fornication, impurity, passion. And we're not talking about passionate, unhealthy passion. Evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. It actually, the Greek says, the children of disobedience. So it's a contrast between you're a child of God, the children of obedience live in a different way. The ways you also once followed when you were living that life. So again, the contrast, you don't live that life anymore. Even if you have unhealthy passion. Or maybe, maybe that list is too harsh, huh? I won't make you raise your hand if you're a fornicator or have evil desires agreed, okay? So maybe that list, you can see, like, Paul's like, oh, okay, well, maybe that list is a little bit too hard. So what about this list? But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. I won't make you raise your hand. <laughs> you might be cussing me out right now. I don't know, right? And he says, these things are not who you are as children of God. Have you ever been so angry that you feel like you couldn't be anything other than that? That's not who you are. Has somebody hurt you so bad that you couldn't help but speak poorly of them? That's not who you are. See, Paul is pointing out this beautiful contrast where he's saying 
Just because you do these things doesn't mean it has to define you. You are who you are in Christ, tucked away, safe, and hidden. What does Psalm 100 say? He is God, and you are his. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? One of the things that I was also reading this week, so you said, Mel, that Sometimes it's easier to believe these lies or believe these things that we've done that have dictated so much of who we are. It's not easy when somebody's hurt you to not be angry, is it? It's not easy when something wrong goes on to be like, oh, okay, it's cool. I'm good with that. No, it's not. Um, to let go of that is a form of suffering. Uh, and so I've been processing a lot about suffering. Because it's, it's maybe, well, for some people maybe, maybe it's a little bit easy to let go of fornication. Maybe that's not something that somebody struggles with, or impurity, or greed, or evil desire. Maybe it's a little bit harder to let go of wrath, or anger, or malice, or slander, or abusive language. And just to clarify, I like this translation because um, it's not talking about potty language. It's talking about abusing people with your words, with your tongue. I'm laughing in my head, the potty language. I'm thinking of my six-year-old, I guess. Um, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices. It's like literally shoop, taking that off. And that process is, is a process of suffering. Um, and so I was, again, processing suffering. Uh, and I was in my quiet time this week, and I read something in Job, uh, verse nine, or passage, or chapter 19, verse 26. Um, how many of you would think that Job suffered just a little bit? If you're familiar with the story, yeah, you'd raise your hand. Job kind of embodies suffering. I'll read verse 25 first because you may have heard a song that goes a little bit like this. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Heard a song like that before? And that at last he will stand upon the earth. And this is verse 26. And I mean, like, you have these moments where it, I feel like I got a kiss from heaven. This was one of those moments. And after my skin has been thus destroyed... Then in my flesh, I shall see God. You see, this process of suffering that Job went through is a destruction of his flesh. I mean, literally. The suffering that you and I will go through is like a rendering of the flesh. It's like being split open. Have you ever had a finger split open? It is so painful. I'll just say hangnail, right? If you had skin that's just split apart, the last thing that you're going to think that you'll see is God in the midst of that, right? You're going to be like blood and pain and difficulty. But what Job says is that, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, then in my flesh I'll see God. This is another way of saying is in the midst of my suffering, in my pain, I will see God. See, it's painful. It's a painful process to reject the lies that people say about you. It's a painful process 
to say, I'm no longer that wrathful or that angry or that malice-filled or that hateful person. I don't look in this room and say, I see those things in you. But what about the people next door to you? What about if we're really honest with the deep places of our heart when people really hurt us? Like, when people really hurt me, the last thing I want to do is I want to suffer. I want to feel justified. I want to push away. I want to be angry. But God says, if you go through that suffering, you will find me. So if you're raised to life with the king, search for the things that are above, where the king is seated at God's right hand. Note, those things aren't hidden. Those things that he says to search for, who's hidden? We are. I'll end uh, with this, and it's that hide-and-seek story. How many of you have played uh, hide-and-seek with the little kid? So number one, that's like when you can feel really good about yourself because you know that you could hide and they can never find you, (laughs) right? You're like, yes. That's the epiphany moment. Knowing that, what do we often do when we play hide-and-seek? We hide in such a way that they'll find us. When I read these passages in Colossians, and I look at Jesus' self-declaration, I look at God's declaration about himself, I feel like he's the father that plays hide-and-seek and wants to be found. He's the one that shows us what it looks like to have our flesh split apart so that people might see him, and we could see that at the cross. And where did we die? It was in Christ on the cross. And so Paul is reminding them, you will find life as you look to Christ. You'll find who you are. And that suffering that you're experiencing out of rejecting, he's like, hey, don't forget, I'm the father that's going to be found. I've tucked you away. You are mine. So um, will you put that question up again for me, Tom? way. One more? There it is. I challenge you to consider this week this. Who are you? And the reason why I challenge you is uh, because um, there's a lot of people, including ourselves, that are hurting in this world. And maybe we'll be able to look to your confidence as a light. How do you know who you are? And then you can point them directly to Jesus and say, because of him. Let me pray for us this morning. Uh, God, thank you that you declare to us, I am. Thank you that you declare to us that um, we're tucked away in you, that you don't hide from us. And thank you that... um, You compel Job to say these words of hope that you are the redeemer that lives and that you um, can be found in our most, excuse me, our most broken places where our our flesh just feels like it's split apart. God, thank you that we can truly behold you and that we'll see you, Um, that we're your, your people.
I know that we all walk in this tension of, of this life here on earth. Um, you don't ask us to escape. What you ask us is to look for you in the midst of all of these difficulties. So I pray for the strength to do that this week for all of us. As we look to find out who we are, that we would be relentless in our pursuit of you, that we would be unending in our prayerful worship, and that we might show others um, who you are. And pray this in your name, Jesus.